Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. On a special NBA trade deadline edition of the Draft Deeper Podcast, in theory, um, this guest and I had other plans for tonight, which we may still very well get to them. But obviously, we're recording this on Thursday, February 10th. It's trade day, and a seismic blockbuster trade happened in the NBA involving my hometown Philadelphia 76ers and the Brooklyn Nets making a swap of Ben Simmons and James Harden. So this seems to be a yearly tradition of mine where I schedule a podcast guest to come on completely forgetting that this day would be the day of the NBA trade deadline. But it's perfect because I have one of my most trusted NBA podcast guest coming on today. I absolutely love a lot of the work that he's done in the space. The creator of the Quest for the Best podcast series, which if you have not listened to that since he's been on last time, please go check that out wherever you get your podcast, the Quest for the Best. And he's been doing some freelance work recently with basketball news. I, I love the NBA content that he puts out. One of the best young minds in the space. Mr. Matt Issa is joining me tonight for this podcast. Matt, how you doing? Um, I had to double check real quick that I was on the right podcast. Uh, the way you were introducing <laughs> me, man, you really, you really got to stop hyping me up so much because you'll, you'll make it sound like you're gonna have like a, a leading expert in the field, and there's just some guy who who gets boneless wings from Buffalo Wild Wings every Thursday. I'm uh, the only one who's allowed to self-deprecate on here. Okay, I'm the only one that's who's allowed thing, to do though. that, Matt. <laughs> that's my mo, man. If you ever listen to Quest for the Best, you know it's all about self-deprecation. So the biggest reason why I wanted to have you on, Matt, was because you and I were going to have a great back and forth chat about some of the rookies, which this rookie class is loaded. It's insane how much talent has floated, uh, floated in the NBA the last two years, but we are derailed slightly. Hopefully we'll be able to get to, to some of that in the allotted time that we have for this podcast, but we have to talk about the 76ers Nets trade, and you're one of two guests that I'll be able to chat it up with about this. Over the next week, next week I'll have CJ Marchesani um, from Roll Call on on this podcast as well. But let's let's get into this, man. So the trade specifically, Philly's shipping out Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and two first round picks for James Harden and Paul Millsap. And Matt, you have heard all of the rumors for months and months and months, as well as me. I'm a Philadelphia 76ers fan, for better or worse. I've had to listen to the Ben Simmons trade chatter for far too long. I've grown sick of it, just like everybody else. We finally have a deal. Daryl Morey has waited so long to pull the trigger on a trade because I guess really he's he's thought all this time that he was going to eventually be able to get his guy, whether that was in a Ben Simmons trade or whether they had to do some crazy cat mechanics to create the room to be able to sign him. As a free agent, should he opt out of his deal? But they have James Harden on the roster now. They have Paul Millsap joining James Harden as well. I don't, I don't exactly know how much Paul Millsap's going to contribute to the 76ers team. That's, I guess, we're in more of a, a wait and see approach on that front. But Matt, when you first heard the deal this afternoon, before we start breaking the trade down piece by piece, what were your initial reactions when you heard the deal? Yeah. So I can first off. Like for everyone listening, I consider myself like a nerd, basketball nerd, not really like 
I wasn't very gifted in the sport um, on, uh, on in uh, in practice, but in theory, I, I love I love all the theory that goes behind it. So the first thing that came to my mind was like, wow, like tra- this trade deadline was a big win for the nerds and yep. a huge loss for the nerds at the same time. <laughs> In the win, like, okay, every basketball nerd, like, fetishizes about being like Daryl Morey. And for months, this guy's name's been getting, like, just thrown in the gutter. He's wasting Embiid's prime. You know, he's being selfish. He's being stubborn. He's not going to get an all-star for Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons' value is, like, in the gutter. Their coach literally said, like, you can't win a championship with this guy. Embiid's been trolling him on Twitter. And what does he do? He lands, you know... Whatever you want to say about James Harden, how he's played this year, he's still one of the 12 best players in the world. You can't convince me otherwise. And he lands that. So, like, that is like, okay, the nerds are still, like, the smartest guys in the room. Cool. But in the same time, the – the ca- I don't oh, – I hate this word, but the casual fans have been rewarded today with, like, this epic trade deadline where literally – okay, here's my thing with trade deadline, first of all. I've been talking about it a lot on Twitter lately, how much it bothers me. One, because it's like um, it's like the gym after the, the first of the year. You know, you get a bunch of people in there who aren't usually there that are in your way. <laughs> you can't get to the machines you want. You know what I mean? So when I'm on Twitter, I can't, I can't find the articles I want to read because I'm too busy looking, finding articles. Oh, three possible teams that could trade for Ben Simmons. How would Ben Simmons fit on the Sacramento Kings? Like all this like bullshit. And we got, like, they rewarded the casuals by making an epic trade deadline. The Simmons thing got resolved when I thought for sure it wouldn't get resolved until the offseason when they had all the time and no pressure. So this is, like, a huge loss for the nerds in that sense because we lost time that we could have spent, like, figuring out what it takes to actually win basketball games. We spent that time, like, just speculating over Ben Simmons. And unfortunately, we were rewarded for that. Yeah, I mean, so so there's two there's two things that really are going to dominate major media outlet coverage for the remainder of the week, going into the next week, and, and bleeding throughout the rest of the year, which is obviously this trade, what the implications are for both Philly and Brooklyn, and then there's the fact that everybody has to talk about the Lakers because the Lakers are the Lakers, and the Lakers did absolutely nothing this deadline, so everybody just takes their opportunity to crap all over the Lakers because they just seem to be heading for a direction of nothingness this year who who knows what that team's going to look like um after this summer and heading into the next season so those are really the two dominant storylines that are going to fall from this trade deadline yet i agree with you matt there were so many other fascinating moves that happened the previous days i i guess a lot of people got their two cents in about the the indiana sacramento trade because of the implications of tyrese halliburton being traded away from his team that drafted him, despite him actually having a really stellar sophomore campaign, which I did write some words about for no ceilings this, this past week. I kind of put together some all sophomore team slash rankings of mine that I talked about with Brett Usher, uh, Brett Usher, excuse me, from the overstated on this podcast last week. But other than that, it is has been this conversation about is James Harden unhappy? If James Harden's unhappy. Is there anybody who would actually be interested in trading for him? Well, that happens to be Daryl Morey and the Philadelphia 76ers. So how does a Ben Simmons, uh, James Harden trade get worked out? What does each side have to put into the deal? That has dominated major outlet coverage, which I agree with you. It spins off all of these articles um, that, that in reality, they don't necessarily bring any context to the game of basketball that's actually being played on the court and the encore ramifications of a trade such as this. But 
we aren't on here to talk about all of the major media outlet jargon, and we're we're here to get into the specifics uh, <laughs> of this trade and what it means for the basketball being played on the court. Because I I do have some questions, Matt. Um, mm-hmm. I understand James Harden is one of the best players that the NBA has to offer. I understand that the combination of him, Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving created one hell of a dynamic trio to be able to go out and possibly win the title this year. Obviously, due to circumstances that, quite frankly, were out of Kevin Durant and Steve Nash's control, um, that will not be the case. James Harden's now in Philadelphia. So I recognize his talent. I just don't – I don't think this is going to be as clean of a fit with Joel Embiid as I think we might be initially inclined to believe. And a lot of James Harden's wizardry is either done in isolation, dribble, 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 create something out of nothing, or he likes to be involved in pick and roll sets where he's able to create something out of that pick and roll, or he has a big who is very comfortable rolling to the basket and sort of being like a vertical threat for, for a lot. Kind of, kind of like how Trey Young has grown accustomed to playing offense in, in Atlanta. So Joel Embiid, for everything that he does on the floor, for his brilliance, 29.4 points per game this year, 10.9 rebounds, 4.3 assists, one of the leading MVP candidates for the award this year, if not the favorite right now to win the MVP award, I guess it would depend on who you talk to. Um he has not generally been the type of player who wants to roll to the basket, and that's kind of his responsibility within the offense. He likes to seal off post and do a lot of his damage, either over either shoulder or turning, facing up. Now he's really added a lot of the mid-range stuff to his game. So, listen, we, we know James Harden's an awesome passer. I just don't know how the offense is going to flow with those two together on the court at the same time. I, I have this fear that it's going to turn into a, a your turn, my turn type of offense. And when you have two players as gifted as those two, sometimes that works. Matter of fact, that that's usually what teams try to strive to have as you get deeper into the playoffs. But sometimes it doesn't, depending on how those two ultimately mesh together. So I have I have a few concerns before we even get into some of the other pieces in the deal. But what do you think, Matt, about the fit of those two on the court together? Yeah. Um, well, nothing you said was wrong, first of all. I pretty much uh, second everything you said. The big, like, knock on their fit is, like, Embiid has taken a lot of leaps as a passer. I think that he's still, uh, he still got some reads he can't make but the problem is with Embiid he's not necessarily the short roll guy like he's going to make passes off yep. of the short roll he, he makes all his passes like an old school big man in the post when he has time to kind of set up there's nothing wrong with that 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 scales well for the playoffs and with Harden though one of the interesting things about um some of the reports have come out that is I don't know how much I buy it just because you know the sample size we have Harden but Harden did not like that he was slotted into the role he played in Houston when he was in Brooklyn. He was kind of expecting something a little bit different, mm-hmm. not as much on-ball reps. So that leads me to believe that the your turn, my turn thing is okay. And also necessarily you kind of made this point about your turn, my turn maybe being better when it comes to the playoffs. And at the end of the day, when your mm-hmm. team's this good, you're only worried about what's going to project in the playoffs. And I mean, it's kind of a working theory I have. I won't go too much into it, but I do think in certain contexts, um, off-ball movement on offense might be a little bit overrated. 
and having like having that your turn my turn set up is maybe more efficient when you're talking about two like half court threats the caliber of those two that's just me so i think that and also with all this said it seems like Embiid himself is is looking like he wants to take a step back from the massive offensive load and the thing about these two players is both of them they don't have the type of bodies to me that like lend themselves to having a long peak you know I think both of them know that they've been banged up a lot already yeah and it would be in their best uh, interest to kind of find a way to decrease their load so I think that in terms of like a the one ball argument I don't think that'll be a problem. And then when it comes to your turn, my turn thing, again, if you have, when you have players that are as efficient as those two, it makes the most sense to maximize your offensive efficiency to not have that like dynamic, um, a lot of cutting, a lot of off ball movement, kind of like Miami or Golden State, where, you know, everyone's getting touches, everyone's doing something on the floor. It makes more sense to just centralize where the decision making is being like done and like who's, um, handling the majority of the the load on offense. So I'm cool with the my turn, your turn thing. And I'm okay with um, Harden not having Embiid as like a premier pick and roll partner. Because, and that, that's another thing that I guess I'm talking about too much stuff at once, but with the. No, go, go, go right. through all of it, man. This is, this is I'll like our going. therapy session at this, at this point for, for this trade. It's at least my therapy session. Yeah. Um, I can't say that I'm like close enough to the team where I feel I'm, um, I've like lost anything from them or <laughs> I have any like uh, survivor's remorse or whatever. But um, back to like, we saw it in Phoenix, I guess, where you can literally find lob threats in free agency. You know, that's not hard. You can find a rim runner. If you have a good enough passer, good enough pick and roll ball handler, you could throw lobs up to anybody. So I'm sure they'll figure out something with that. I know they lost Andre Drummond and he would have kind of been really helpful in this role, but they'll figure out something with that. When they stagger their minutes, I'm sure Harden will have 12 or 15 minutes a game where he can throw as many lobs as he wants. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I, don't, I don't think I'm as worried about the fit as other people are. It's, and I look at the Brooklyn thing from last year, and say what you will about like the off-the-court dynamics, but when they were on the floor together, at least last season, the fit was fine. It was money, to be honest. So, and people were worried about the one-ball thing there, your turn, my turn. And here, I don't see it. It's even less players to worry about, you know? One of the things that James Harden has done throughout his career, and one of the reasons why he's viewed as a brilliant basketball player is because he immediately lifts the floor of any team that he's on. He consistently makes everyone else around him better because of the types of looks that he's able to give them within an offense. And that's great if you have some of the the, the shooting and some of the off-ball type of movement that you can put around Harden to better complement his passing skill set. But you look at what they lost with Seth Curry, and this comes back Man, to... That's a stinger. That is a stinger. So so the Curry thing is one stinger. The Drummond thing is another stinger. I'll, I'll, I'll start with the Curry thing. So this year, I, I don't want to undersell how good Curry's been because for, for everyone who doesn't watch a healthy amount of Philadelphia 76ers basketball, they might look at this trade and think, uh, well, you're going to get James Harden back. Like, of course, you, you throw in whoever you need to to get the deal done. If you're getting James Harden, considering Ben Simmons is not going to play for you, you have to fill that roster spot somehow. And if you can fill it with one of the best players in the NBA, you do it. Well, 
Yes, to an extent, I would ultimately agree, but that doesn't mean that some of the ramifications of this trade won't hurt them in different situations. So I don't want to undersell how good Curry's been. He's averaged 15 points per game, 3.4 rebounds, 4 assists, 48.5% shooting from the field, 40% from three-point range, 87.7% from the line. That gives him a 60.3 true shooting percentage as an undersized guard in the NBA, mind you. Everybody wants to talk about how this is a game of Giants, at this point, and you want as many plus size uh, players at each position. But when you are an elite shooter like Curry is, that is such a dynamic weapon to have within the offense. And considering everything Embiid wants to do in terms of playing out of handoffs, um, being able to pass out of the double to open spot up shooters in the corner, Seth Curry is one of the best players to have on your team to be able to do that. And that's a big reason why Brooklyn probably wanted him back in this deal is because he is going to thrive just as well as Patty Mills has playing in Brooklyn. Like when Patty Mills went to Brooklyn, um, I, I know I, I've seen you talk about it, Matt. Like you were a big proponent of that move for, for Brooklyn, as a lot of people were, because I think people just forgot how good Patty Mills was. And when you put him in an offensive system next to multiple other dynamic ball handlers who can essentially create whatever they want out of nothing, and when things go bad, Patty Mills is probably going to be open because the defense is throwing so much tension on those other guys. And if you're turning Patty Mills into this open catch and shoot player where he can just bomb up like eight to 10 of those shots per game and he's hitting them at like a 40 to 50% clip, that's adding so much to your offense. So now Brooklyn's going to have two of those guys and Philly will not have the same level of player to replicate um, Seth Curry. I know that Shake Milton's eventually going to come back, but we're talking about like the Furkan Korkmazes of the world, the Isaiah Joes of the world. Um, you're expecting Maxi to continue to maintain the leap that he's taking shooting from three-point range. Last year, he was hesitant to shoot some of those threes. This year, he's been much more comfortable stepping into a lot of those looks, but you're asking him to sort of fill that role. I just don't know if they're going to have another player on this roster who can benefit them offensively the same way that Seth Curry did. Like, let's also not forget that at times during the playoffs last year against Atlanta, like Seth Curry was the second best player for that team um, dur during a lot of that stretch. He was able to hit shots when, when nobody else could um, create anything for that team. An underrated creator out of pick and roll. We mentioned the, the handoffs, the open spot up shooting. So do you think that Philly has the pieces in place around Harden and Embiid to continue to play to both of their strengths from a spacing standpoint? Um, no, I mean, no, technically no. Like, but the thing is, if you maximize, we've seen maximized Embiid. Like, I think that this team prior to Harden, so with Seth Curry, that was probably like the perfect offense to build around Embiid. You know what I mean? Maybe you'd have one stronger ball handler. Yep. And like that at its peak is not going to win you an NBA championship. And then, I mean, a Harden-led offense almost did win an NBA championship and mm -hmm. they maybe should have that one year against Golden State. So that's a little bit different, but that's a, not the Harden we have today. So I don't think, like, I don't think you want to maximize an offense around Embiid, like solely, because that's going to make you like a, like a really fun 45-50 win team. And I don't think this version of Harden is somebody you want to maximize an offense around. So I think I would like, I like how these offense aren't complete. I wouldn't say suboptimal, but they're not like the optimal offensive setting for either one of them. But having each other, like that raises your ceiling. At the end of the day, when you're when you're talking about this kind of team, they're they're more concerned with raising their ceiling. Now, here's one thing I want to post to you. We were talking, and um, you were saying uh, you would 
correct me if I'm wrong, but you would rather have kept Curry than Thibault. Correct. And, yeah, so I completely disagree. Well, first, I'd say if he's not, like, already, like, an all-league defender, he will be in the terms of Thibault. And then I kind of see his offensive game under Harden turning into that of a P.J. Tucker. And I think if that's the case where he can hit corner threes at, like, a 30% rate, then he'll be playable, like, for 30, 35 minutes in a playoff series per game. You know what I mean? I, I want to see Thibault turn into a much more dangerous cutter versus just exclusively using him as a, a corner three-point shooter because his, his three-point shot has not come along to the level that uh, we might have hoped it would be, uh, be at by this point. Oh, go ahead, Matt. I'm just going to say, if he can – and I think he is shooting about 30% right now, isn't he? I would have – it's funny. I, the, the One of the players I did not pull stats on – um, was Matisse Thibel. He's at 31.6% for three. So he's below average, but not, not terrible. He's not, he's not like, he's not tanking your offense in the same way out on the court as a sub 30% three point shooter would be. Yeah. And um, I remember, like, it was a month ago, I think I got to interview Seth Parnell about his book for Basketball News. And he was telling me that as long as you're like a below average three point shooter, like, defenders are going to close out on you. And, like, in the case of this offense, with Harden, with Embiid, as long as Thibel can draw a closeout, I think he's fine. Right now, of course, like moving forward, I think there is room for him to grow as a cutter. He's really quick. He's like, mm-hmm. uh, um, he's silky, so it's easy for him to slide through small crevices. And he has done a little bit of work in the dunker spot, him and Embiid. But, um, so I think what, if he can just be like a decent corner three-point shooter in the way P.J. Tucker was, he'll be fine for this version of this team because of what he does on defense. I'm curious to see how Tobias handles this. I think um, I've never seen Tobias with this level of a creator before, or honestly, quite frankly, this level of a perimeter player before. He's got to be the best perimeter player he's ever played with. I would say this version of Harden's probably better than Philadelphia version of Jimmy Butler, right? So he he's another angle to throw into this, though, Matt. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that you brought him up because we can talk about this a little bit. I hadn't fully formulated thoughts about how Tobias fits into this. But when you look at when Tobias has been his best, it's generally been when he's able to actually do some things on the ball, right? Like he's able to sort of get into his yeah, mid offense and he's able to, he's able to step back or get all the way to the basket. Not necessarily this catch and shoot type of player who you're essentially going to have a, an overpaid corner three point shooter. Like, I don't, I don't think that's where Tobias's game is best at. And at the same time, like, is, is that really what he wants to be doing anyway? So my, I guess really what this comes back to is we know how good James Harden is on the ball. Can he be better than he's been off the ball this year? Um, and, and he has proven to be uh, – uh, he can be a good three-point shooter off the catch. He can do some things cutting to the basket off the ball. But can he be more of an active scorer when he doesn't necessarily have the ball in his hands? He's able to dribble, 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 create – to let Embiid have more of that freedom in the post, to let Tobias be able to create some of those mid-range jumpers and, and kind of keep balance within the offense to make sure that we're not just asking two out of the three guys to mold their games around one player, that that player himself is still good enough and able to mold his game with those two other guys. Because we thought that was going to happen in Brooklyn, but as you pointed out, Matt, it kind of reverted back to Houston, James Harden, and that's... In, in a lot of ways, at least last season, that's kind of where he ended up finding success. So can he mesh with those other two guys 
off the ball. What are your thoughts on that? See, like the word that I'm, I'm anchoring on what you just said is active. And it reminds me of an article Caitlin Cooper wrote for 538 this summer. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, the one about Eric Gordon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, that's kind of like where I'm at with Harden, where I think him just standing still, just because of the shooter he is, even though it's he's like one of those weird shooters where he's better in pull-up situations than off the yes. catch. Him just standing still and commanding that gravity, I think that's enough off-ball from him, to be honest. Like, he doesn't need to be a, a mover trying to cut, trying to do things, trying to screen. I think that's fine if he's off the ball and he's just holding one defender and making it a four-on-four game. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I think I at some I point, though, he has to hit some of those open three-point shots, though. Like, he's only shooting 33% this year. He has struggled. He's he he's not awful on catch-and-shoot shots. Mm-hmm. He's the 45th percentile. That rates out as average on synergy. That's not, that's not bringing your team down. But I think that he will have to be more consistent hitting those shots in this offense to fully maximize everybody else around him. Honestly, like respectfully, I don't think he does need to be any more consistent than that. Because like at that rate, people will close out on him, and if people close out on James Harden, it's going to be dribble into a pull up shot, and you know that's a much better shot for James Harden. Right, but my my whole point to that is that mm-hmm. Philly needs to be able to walk away with as many points per possession as possible, and if James Harden's going to be the James Harden who's bricking jumper after jumper after jumper on certain nights. I wonder if there's enough on this team to be able to pick up the pieces elsewhere offensively besides just throwing the ball to Embiid and wearing him down towards the end of the game because he's had to carry the offense to certain loads, you know, night after night after night after night. So I just want to make sure there's enough balance within the offense where everybody can coexist and James Harden can play to the strengths of his teammates as well. Um, I get your point completely about just him being a threat because we know that he has the ability to be an above-average shooter, just that threat alone will bring the defense out and allow him to attack off of that closeout. I I hope we get to see more of that James Harden as well because he has not looked as athletic this year as we've seen him in years past. He hasn't been nearly the threat finishing around the basket as he has been in years past. He hasn't been able to draw the same fouls as he's been able to in years past. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just a little too much of a skeptic at this point, maybe I'm really nitpicking in terms of the fit, but those are just those are just some of my concerns. And I don't know, the Curry thing stings because I just think that he he's so much of a release valve for that offense at different points that he's been since he's been in Philadelphia. And not having that same type of player, like I don't know if I trust Isaiah Joe to eventually step into that role. Korkmaz, I, I think Korkmaz might potentially be the missing ingredient to what I'm talking about. But Korkmaz has not been that good this year. Um, he's he's certainly been below the level of play that we've been uh, accustomed to expecting from him. And it's not that he's this, you know, $15 million a year guy who we necessarily need him to produce to win basketball games. But now that you get rid of Curry, like he's going to be the guy that's asked to really step into that role, especially when Harden's off the floor and Embiid's on the floor. And I don't know. Do do I trust him to play close to the level of like Seth Curry in those situations, working off handoffs, coming off screens? Like in in years past, he has absolutely stepped up and hit big shots when we least expected it. But this year, his jumper's been cold uh, more more often than not. So I just I just don't see that Seth Curry type of replacement to really make this go. And it's going to come down to that your turn, my turn type of offense. How good can those two be together? 
um, on each night. Can they both be consistent 25 plus points per game scorers to effectively carry that offense for when some of the other guys around them, um, like a Korkmaz, like a, a shake when he eventually comes back, like when these guys aren't able to hit shots and it comes down to those two, are those two going to be able to live up to what they've been doing at different points in their career? And in Embiid's case, what he's done all year, which has been carry that offense through a lot of the muck, will he be able to do that for the extent of a playoff run and how that's going to take a toll on him and how it's effectively taken a toll on Harden all these years? I, I don't have the answers to those questions is my concern. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, neither do I. And if I did, I wouldn't. You know, quite frankly, I probably wouldn't be on this podcast. I'd be, like, <laughs> You'd be working in your front office. <laughs> yeah, but um, so I'm, I mean, like, I'm, you know, I'm curious. I, I talk all this stuff about, like, um, like, you know, how I think Harden will do well in that offense. I still probably wouldn't take them to come out of the East right now just because of all the nuances. that. Yeah, Milwaukee you know. still has to be the favorite. Uh, yeah, you know, no, I would say so. I would say so. I'm, I, would re- I would really love to see Giannis and MB. We have not seen a playoff series between the two of them, have we? Giannis and B, we haven't seen a playoff series, no, but we've seen absolutely see spectacular that. regular season games. Oh, my God. Some of those games yeah. have been ridiculous. And usually it's really funny. It's usually one team blowing, <laughs> blowing the other team out because um, I think they just want to take it at each other. But, yeah, playoff series between those two. But, yeah, I think you would, I think you would still take – you would still take the Bucks today. I would probably still take the Bucks to come out of the East. They were my preseason pick um, to, to go to the finals. I don't know if this James Harden trade to Philly swings it one way or the other. I think we're just going to have to wait and see how everything plays out with this deal. The, the last piece on the Philly side, though, Matt, and I'm curious – I, I don't I don't know. I haven't been as close to like the potential buyout market this year, especially when it comes to big men, but just think about the production that Andre Drummond for for all that everybody wants to shit on Andre Drummond and how he's he's not the player who was once worthy of the type of contract that he could command. How he's not that same type of big man, that type of big man that should not command that much role within uh, within a team should not command that much money for all the people want to make those types of comments. His per 36 numbers, almost 12 points per game, 17 rebounds per game, uh, four combined steals and blocks, four assists, uh, shooting 54% from the field. Where else are the Philadelphia 76ers going to get that kind of production from, um, from the backup center spot? Like right now, their backup bigs would effectively be Charles Bassey and Paul Reed, both who have spent a ton of time with the Delaware Bluecoats this year. So, like, was Daryl Morey more comfortable in throwing him in the deal because they think they're going to be able to get somebody like Tristan Thompson on the buyout market? Like, where, where else are they going to get that level of production, especially if Embiid does have to miss time at any other points over the course of the year? Like, Drummond stepping in when Embiid had to miss games was actually a pretty reliable option for them um, on, on both ends of the floor, give and take some of the stupid turnovers, some of the stupid mistakes that he's prone to making. But as a whole... He was actually a really effective big for the 76ers this year. So I guess that's really my last my last concern with this trade is just I don't know where they're going to get some of that backup big production from. Um, I don't know if you have a, a, any answers, any speculation, any any theories on where they might possibly go in like the buyout market to fill that void. Or if I'm wrong and you think maybe one of like a Charles Bassey or a Paul Reed could could step into a role like that. Yeah, um, I'm not gonna lie, and I haven't paid too much attention to what the buyout market's projected to look like. Okay, so we're um, on the same page. <laughs> yeah, no, but um, I was gonna say I was gonna say this: if I was the 76, I probably wouldn't target Tristan Thompson because I said like he's not really the rim runner, lob finisher type. 
but to me, and I know again, like basketball is way more nuanced than this, but if like Phoenix could like appropriate like in spots, you know, the production of DeAndre Ayton with like Jaden Smith and um, Bismack Biombo, I'm sure the 76ers and Darren Moore could come up with something. Uh, I'm going to be honest, like I was reading something the other day and it was like kind of depressing, but pretty true. Like players who aren't like worth like, I think it was like four wins in an NBA season don't really move the needle when you're talking about championships. And I don't, I don't think Draymond was worth, uh, I mean, excuse me, Draymond, Drummond was worth the four wins. Like, so I don't think like, I know it's like a loss in, in spots that's helpful in a regular season game, but I don't think he really moves the needle one way or another. And like replacing him won't be too much of a hit, especially when you're, you're getting like someone like James Harden who will move the needle for you. I will say the one big positive about having Harden back in this trade, um, not just the fact that he is the talent that he is, the, the potential magic that him and Embiid could create together if everything boils over correctly, but I specifically remember messaging you about this, Matt, when I was driving down to the, the, the Blue Coats Ignite game the, the other week about how mm-hmm. I've grown sick and tired of the 76ers not having a backup point guard and having, like, Furkan Korkmaz, for example, bring the ball up the floor for them because they don't have a reliable backup point guard. At least they can stagger minutes between Maxi and Harden in certain situations to the point where you always have the right type of guard bringing the ball up the floor and getting, getting everybody within the flow of the offense. Like, thank God I don't have to watch, like, clumsy Furkan Korkmaz bring the ball up the floor for the 76ers anymore. So that that is definitely um, a, a positive that comes from this trade. As for the Brooklyn side of things, I don't really have too many thoughts to share on that front just because we haven't seen Ben Simmons play basketball for a long time. We don't know when he's going to effectively get back on the court. Obviously, I, I love the, the Seth Curry addition for them. I think Drummond can be useful for them, just, just like he was for Philly um, in, in some backup center minutes. But in terms of the Simmons fit, it, it's going to be really interesting to see how quickly he he's able to mesh with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Maybe it is very quick because he's such a brilliant mind himself, um, and, and he's playing with two other really high-caliber players, and maybe they're going to make it work right out of the gate whenever he does come back, and the Nets are able to be the type of threat standing in front of the 76ers like, Somebody like Stephen A. Smith has tried to say for the last few days, for example, like the Nets could very well stand in front of Philly. I don't know if I necessarily believe that to be true, but do you have any other thoughts that you've been thinking about as far as the the Brooklyn side of things? Yeah, I was going to say, like, I'm kind of shocked, like, Brooklyn was able to get the package they were because I feel like Harden put them in a pretty shitty spot today, you know, letting the report for Woj leak out, like, literally the last minute possible and forcing, um, I mean, uh, Brooklyn's hand against, you know, the, the literal mastermind of GMs. So I thought that they would have gotten um, just thrashed. I thought it would have ended up being like Simmons for Harden, to be honest, and maybe like one other piece. So they came out of this like pretty solid. This season, unless something happens with the COVID mandates, I don't think we can look at them as serious contenders just because of how strong the East is. But like moving forward, having a guy like Simmons play next to Kyrie, KD, Seth, um, you know, whatever Joe Harris, when he comes back, I think they put him in a really good spot. And I mean, when last seen, like Ben Simmons was an all-star and yep. depending on the, con- and this was in a pretty bad context, I would say, I don't think Philly was really a good spot for him because of 
one, just because the expectations being a first overall pick. And then, like, just roster-wise, I don't think it was the ideal fit. And I think it's a way better fit. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he's still, like, a pretty solid all-star contributing player. And when you have, like, three guys that you could say that about, you usually have a really good team. And, I mean, Steve Nash has done nothing but impress me as a head coach, to be honest with you. So, I think this season, unless something changes with Kyrie, they're effectively out of the championship mix for me. But, like, moving forward, they've done a pretty good job at, like, giving themselves a chance for at least the next two or three years. Yeah, I will say I am upset to see the Ben Simmons situation ultimately end like this. I was upset to see everything happen last year in the playoffs. I know it would be very easy for me to react um, as any other Philadelphia fan would out of anger for how everything transpired, how the encore production ultimately transpired. But at the same time, I also recognize the, the special talent that Ben Simmons remains to be whenever he does get back on the floor. And it's been really interesting to watch the 76ers this year and realize that in a lot of respects, he was the missing ingredient that this team has needed um, throughout the course of the season. They've needed another on-ball defender. They've needed another playmaker. They've needed that other point guard, especially when Maxi isn't in the lineup. They could have used him so bad this year, yet everything just did not work out for him to be able to share the court with Embiid and, and his fellow teammates anymore. And it's really sad. And, and I always said that I didn't know in a Ben Simmons trade if they were going to be able to swing the complete um, way in terms of on-court production that Ben Simmons was about, which was defense first. I always thought if they were going to make a trade with him, they, they, were, they, they would kind of be forced to swing the complete opposite direction where they'd have to put everything into maximizing the offense, which when you have a defensive talent like Embiid, you kind of want to put as much offense around him as possible because he is that good of a defender, even just by himself, the, the type of rim protector that he is. He's one of the top like five or six best defensive players that we have in the NBA. But at the same time, if you're going that direction and you're trading for a guard like a, like a James Harden or a CJ McCollum at, at the time was, was a hot name that I've talked about in a trade like this. If you're going to swing that direction, you're not going to get defense from those guys and you're going all in on the offense. They better be damn good offensive players um, to, to make that work because of what you're suffering from on the defensive end. So you're expecting a lot out of Thibault. You're expecting a lot out of a bead and the offense that you're getting back in a package like that better be damn good. And thankfully for the 76ers, as you pointed out, Matt, they got one of the, the 10 to 12 best players in the NBA when he's right in James Harden, one of the greatest offensive players I've certainly ever seen with my two eyes um, live and up close. So will that be enough to swing the needle for them to win the title? I have no idea. But if they were going to swing the way of offense in a Ben Simmons trade, they Daryl Morey swung that pendulum as far as it could go in that direction. So I, I hope it works out for them. I hope that we see some fireworks out of Philadelphia. I hope they're able to make a run in the playoffs and it make things interesting in the Eastern conference. Cause as you said, Matt, the, the, the bucks and the heat are two really, really, really good teams. Um, I had skepticism about Miami being able to hold it together to uh, for a top seed in the Eastern conference regular season just because I didn't fully trust the depth that that team had after they made the moves that they did. But once you get into the playoffs and it's about seven man rotations, they have as good of a seven man rotation as anybody else 
um, in the league, at least that that's my opinion. I know they might not have the, the top shelf MVP player like Giannis, but Jimmy Butler played like a top 10 player in the bubble when Miami went on that finals run. We know what Bam Adebayo gives them, what Kyle Lowry gives them, what P.J. Tucker gives them, what the combination of Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson can give them. So they are as dangerous of a team with great chemistry, great culture as anybody else, and the Bucks being the defending champions that they are. I mean, we, we know what they bring to the table with, with Giannis, Chris, and Drew. So it's going to be fascinating to see how this East race shakes out. So you said you would still probably have the Bucks as the favorite in the East today? Yeah, maybe. The Bucks are the Heat, to be honest. I would say I'd take the Bucks over the 76ers, and I'd probably take the Heat over the 76ers, too. I mean, the Heat are just, like, well, first of all, like, Spo is on a different level as a coach. Like, this is the best work I've ever seen him do. He's peaking as a coach. And then... It's funny how we how, say that every year, though. Like, every year yeah, we're no, like, Spo's doing the best job of his career. Like, he's one of the top five coaches in the NBA, and it seems like he's always outdoing himself every single year. I mean, they're the reason he's why another, he's listed he, as one of the top 15 coaches of all time, right, Nate? He's, he's yes, really Kevin. that good. At any time we're talking about the Miami Heat or Lonzo Ball, we we, we, we get Kevin. <laughs> hey, I, I know a lot about Miami Heat, so I can at least contribute to this. Right, go, go ahead. ahead yeah, but uh, I mean, like, you know, Spo is Spo. Uh, Kyle Lowry is pretty much Eastern Conference, Chris Paul Light. You know, Jimmy Butler is um, somebody I want to look more into in the future. Just because, I mean, obviously we know who Jimmy Butler is, but like the idea of like, Jimmy Butler's kind of like a, he's he's like a, a top 10 mercenary for hire. And what I mean is like he can like moonlight as like a top, like he's probably someone in that 10 to 12 range, but like he can moonlight as like the guy, you know what I mean? When need be, like he can go toe-to-toe with LeBron when need be. And I was just like really anecdotal, but he can go toe-to-toe with Giannis when need be. He can just, in spots, he can do that. And then Bam is, you know, he's one of the up-and-coming guys in the league. I know it's crazy to say up-and-coming, but he is still like super young. And he's only yes. been like this type of play, this type of player for a couple of years now, but um, no, I I love that he top down. They're solid on both sides of the ball. The stuff they run, and I was t- you know I was talking about like off ball movement might be a little bit overrated on offense. It's not overrated with the Heat. All of their movements are precise, calculated. It works. But um, yeah, I think I would still say I have Philly at three. Which is that's probably where I would have them um right now mm-hmm. as well. So we're we're both in agreement on that front, but that. That's enough 76ers talk. That's enough 76ers Nets talk. We're going to move on to what we wanted this podcast to ultimately be about. I know we haven't left ourselves with like a full hour of time to run through some of these guys, but um, I mainly wanted this to kind of be some, some, some quicker hits on some of these rookies anyways. If you haven't read my column where I went in depth about all of these guys, you can certainly read that at noceilings.substack.com. Uh, my, my rookie ladder that I put up, I talked about 16 different rookies. We're not going to talk about nearly as many, um, but we are going to share some thoughts about some of the rookies in particular that have caught Matt's eyes. He's been able to study different p- portions of the league a little closer this season, um, and he's been able to write about different things. So, Matt, out of the rookies that we're going to talk about or, or that we said that we could talk about tonight, in your opinion, who do you feel has been the best rookie this season. I'm assuming you're probably going to say Mr. Evan Mobley, who I also had at, at number one. Would I be correct? Mm, you would not be correct. Wow, so, it's not season, Mr. Mobley. Oh, I'm I'm excited this, now. Go ahead. Okay, like 
I mean, this is not anti-Evan Mobley. Like, every night I watch him. No, I don't watch every game. But, like, every time I watch him, I come away impressed. I'm like, you know, this guy's like a seven-foot gazelle who blocks <laughs> shots and makes beautiful passes. But, um, I don't know, man. I think, like, like he's just one of Twitter's guys. You know what I mean? He's in the Twitter's guys list where, like, he's a fun player. He's He, he checks a lot of the bingo card boxes. You know, he's, he's switchable. He's versatile. He's like a a good secondary playmaker makes passes off of short roll, whatever, even though he's not like that great of a screener. But um, to me, he's in the best context out of all the rookies right now, which is like funny to say, cause he's playing for Cleveland who like, who would have thought in the beginning of the year, they would have fostered the best context for a rookie, but he's in a perfect spot where his style of defense, that is versatility. Um, he relies a lot on like his foot speed, his, his ability to be in position, he's really good at getting in the right positions. It, um, it's like maximized because he's with the perfect protection partner. Absolutely. Partner that is where I think Mobley's two biggest flaws on defense are his strength or lack thereof. He, he gets bullied whenever he's put in like those one-on-one post-up situations. And Jared Allen's like really strong. He's really sturdy, even though he's got like a slater frame. And then I think Mobley is like, he's kind of a slow jumper to me. He needs like, he needs that extra bend in his knees to get up. And that's like half a second, maybe 0.4 of a second longer to get up. And he, he misses out on a lot of blocks that way. And I mean, I haven't like timed the two of them, but I would say Allen gets up a little bit quicker. And between the two, he's a better shot blocker for me. So having that like safety valve on defense has been really helpful. And then offensively recently, he's really ramped up his, um, his on-ball work, and Mark just wrote a really good piece. Mark Schindler over at Basketball News wrote a really good piece about that. But for the most part, he's been pretty fortunate to have a guy like Garland who is able to create so much and really, like, you know, stir the drink for that offense. But not, like, not to say that he's not an awesome basketball player. I just think, like, we were maybe just a little too high on him. For me, and I know I'm from Michigan, so maybe a little bit of homer bias here, but to me, Cade Cunningham has been the most impressive all the rookies i don't know what do you think about him so it's funny you say that because i did not have evan mobley number one on my draft board um i i did not do technical quote-unquote numbered rankings during the last draft i wanted to specifically put players within different tiers i've had to switch over more (laughs) or not over switch back to a numbered system this year because of all the work that we're doing over in those ceilings. We want to be able to put together um, composite big boards and then use those big boards to be able to formulate mock drafts. So I, I, I kind of had to switch back to a numbered system. If I were to have given numbers to those prospects last year, I would have had him at number three and I would have had Kate Cunningham number one, and I would have had Jalen green number two. And I had them in a top tier for a reason. I thought that at the end of the day, that those two, were the types of MVP caliber players that I would feel comfortable in projecting out that way. And that wasn't to say that me having Evan Mobley in a tier just behind those guys saying that he could not be a great player, but I thought that he was much more likely to be a a multi-time all-star, but not like, not like entering into the top three of an MVP conversation potentially one day. I, I didn't see that level of aggressiveness from him offensively last year to the point where, you're looking at him and one day he's going to be the same type of offensive player as like an Anthony Davis, for example, like he's going to be really, really good at what he does. I just didn't know if he'd be able to carry a team to that extent. Now 
I could be wrong about that. I could absolutely be wrong about that. What he's already shown this year, I think he's played to a lot of his strengths that he did at USC, and he's been able to because of the context that's around him. Matt, I loved how you framed his defense because I thought that each of these three guys went to the best situation ultimately for them. Would Evan Mobley have been good this year in Houston or Detroit? Absolutely. I think that Evan Mobley could be good no matter where he went uh, because he is that talented of a player. But you talk about what he's not good at. It's defending one-on-one in the post against bigger, stronger guys than him, at least certainly right now. And you have Jared Allen to do that next to Evan Mobley. And you let Evan Mobley be this incredible roaming force where you're able to have two seven-footers on the floor at the same time. But for what people might have had reservations about having two seven-footers on the floor, they're also two of the most athletic seven-footers in the entire NBA. So that sort of wipes away some of those concerns about a quote-unquote traditional style. And then when you factor in Lowry Markin and how he fits on the floor next to those two guys and throw in like Isaac Okoro and Darius Garland, I thought that Evan Mobley was coming into a really good situation for him to be able to play to his defensive strengths, but also offensively, he could be a floor spacer at times. He could be a, a playmaker out of, off the short roll and pick and roll. Um, he could be used as an off-ball type of guy. He wasn't really asked to necessarily carry the offense, or he wouldn't be in, in Cleveland. He could kind of play off of everybody else and, in turn, use his passing ability to make everyone around him better. Um, play that high-low game with Jared Allen. Play that two-man game with Darius Garland where those two have, cre- have built great chemistry with one another. So I thought that he was in a great place for him. But I had... Kate Cunningham, number one on my board, Matt. And if you were to ask me today who I would still take number one, I'm still taking Kate Cunningham um, number one. So why don't you tell me about why you think he's been special for Detroit? Well, okay. So I try, like, I really try to stay away from, like, the the killer narrative. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's hard to quantify. You could put that on anybody's label. Anybody who makes, like, a nasty face after they hit a clutch shot. (laughs) You know what I mean? Sure. But like I watch Cade and it's funny to me he like when he the night he got ejected against Phoenix for pointing at somebody because like I had never and I've watched a lot of Cade Cunningham. I've never seen him lose his cool. Like he's so calm. I remember he I was talking to a uh, Bryce Simon, Motor City Hoops, um, when we worked together on the Cade article, and Bryce is like the one thing that stood out to me is like the guy started out like 0 for twenty from three and he hits his first three pointer against the Brooklyn Nets and it's like a nationally televised game. He doesn't bat an eyelash. He doesn't like, smile. He doesn't bat an eyelash. He keeps playing basketball. I remember I was watching uh, – I watched him play the Jazz earlier this year when they beat them. And they were up by, uh, like, I want to say, like, five or seven points in the fourth quarter. They had just come storing back. And Cade got a steal, and he was running in transition, and they had the advantage, but the Jazz played it well. And so there, the advantage wasn't really there. And instead of trying to force something, Cade dribbled back to the three-point line like restarted the entire offense and they ended up getting a basket somehow. I forget exactly what took place next, but they ended up winning that game. And I looked at that play and I was like, that really could have swung the entire thing. If Cade makes the wrong play and the jazz get back and they get a bucket, they're like a machine on offense. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. the Pistons are the Pistons, but the Cade at the age of 19 or 20 or whatever he is, he had the presence of mind to stop and, and there's guys in their mid-20s and their late-20s who, who don't know how to do that. And just seeing that at such a young age, the poise, the the expansiveness, I guess, of his 
of his uh, demeanor and then his game like he's not like a you know an ultra athlete he i think he's got uh i think he's like reactively strong not like proactively strong so like he's decent at like taking contact but he's not good at giving it if, if you know yeah. what i mean but um and he's not like you know you know he's not super fast he doesn't really get up that high but um he's got so many like different moves in his in his metaphorical bag of tricks for his finishing and then the three point shooting's coming along the passing it's uh i would say he's probably the second or third best passer after like giddy um and sengun maybe but um there's that it's just like i don't know man it's hard to it's hard to explain i and i don't want to just say he's got feel because that's like a cop out answer but he really does feel it he feels he's got poise he's got he's a he's got a versatile like bag of tricks and he's so mature man like i forget the guy's like 3 years younger than me you know what i mean and mm-hmm. like he's 3 years younger than me and I spend my Saturday nights getting drunk at a bar, and he spends his Saturday <laughs> nights, like, you know, in the gym or playing NBA basketball games. Or hitting hitting clutch shots at the end of fourth quarters yeah. in, in the NBA. Yeah. I, just, I know that's all anecdotal. It's not – nothing statistic. But, like, I mean, the stats are there. You watched him play in college. He's first overall pick. You don't need me to tell you about that. You know what I mean? Why don't I tell you about the intangibles? Listen, man, I mean, we, we can talk about numbers all we want to with the rookies, but if you mm-hmm. spend too much time drowning yourself in, like – the synergy percentiles, for example, or like if you try to look these rookies up on dunks and threes, like it's going to paint a very negative picture for you about these guys because they're rookies. And the NBA game, I mean, Matt, you, you like one number uh, metrics or any of that. Yeah, the, you know it better than I do. I mean, you're watching NBA basketball at least this season a lot more often than I am. Like this game is fucking hard, man. Like this is not, it's not easy to come into this level of basketball for the first time within the first year of your life and dominate. In, in any sense, which is why, like, what Evan Mobley has done this season, what Cade Cunningham is now really starting to do consistently for Detroit, what Scotty Barnes has done this year, what Franz Wagner is doing down in Orlando, like, that's what makes this class ridiculous, what, what Josh Giddey's done in Oklahoma City. Yeah. yeah. Nick, can I ask you this? I know we don't have too much time left, but this is like, is it? Okay. Maybe I've gotten more optimistic over the years the more I've come to appreciate, like, how hard the game basketball is. Like, is it reasonable to believe that we can have five all NBA guys in one draft class? Is that crazy? So what, what, what I've said about this particular draft class, 20, 2021, even go back to 2020 um, on this podcast over the summer, I made it a point to go back and look at previous draft classes, kind of figure out where I would ultimately tier those guys today. And you look back and it's really like, about 15-ish players you would generally classify like so many years later as starting caliber players in the NBA. And so many of them either fizzle out to like like bench type of roles, which so some of them can still be meaningful, meaningful contributors, obviously, in those bench roles, or they're ultimately like phasing out of the league. Um, it, it's very rare that you find either the depth of like 2020, for example, where you look back and you're like, like 20 to 25 of these guys could be starting level players in the NBA as their careers go on, or you look at this class 2021 and you look at the star power at the top where obviously you had Kane Mobley. I'm not going anywhere on Jalen green. Um, Scotty Barnes has been really good. Franz Wagner has certainly exceeded my expectations, at least so far in his rookie year. Um, Giddy's shown promise. You have guys like, Giddy's, like the best, Giddy's the best 19 year old passer ever. And he's not even one of the three best players in this draft. He's he he he's he's a he's a ridiculous passer. I think that I, I I've seen some people talk about on social media how he might be the best inbounds passer 
in the entire NBA at this point, which is crazy to think about. But if you go back and watch some of the clips, I I, I don't think that's completely out, out of the realm of possibility. I wouldn't call that crazy talk at all. Um, but then you throw in like valuable contributors like Duarte or Herb Jones, given where he was drafted. Um, and, and then you take into account guys like Shen Goon, who we, we don't know how good Shen Goon is going to end up being. Like, I sung his praises very highly in the draft class last year. And it's really funny how if you go back and, and watch some of his international film and you look at some of the numbers, it's kind of like you either saw it with him or you didn't. Like, there, there, really, no, there really was no middle ground with him. Like, either you thought that he was like a top seven pick or you thought that he should be like had a flyer taken on him in like the 20s. And you look at what he's done this year for Houston, even though his rookie year hasn't been perfect, he needs to stop being an absolute foul machine on the court. He needs to actually learn how to play defense in terms of not fouling so that he can bring more of his offensive brilliance to light. But his per 36 numbers, Matt, I mean, 17 points, nine rebounds, almost five assists, 3.4 stocks. Like, that's pretty crazy production from somebody who we didn't even know if he could have been worth like a top 10 pick in the draft. So like when you talk about how many, how crazy is it to expect how many all NBA guys we could have in one draft class, if we could have as many as like five, usually that's a ridiculous notion, but not for a loaded draft class like this, where if you go back and look at how many players I had, like, in tiers like one through four, which I would categorize as like being no less than like a sixth or a seventh man in a rotation. I had like 37 possible prospects that I graded in such tiers. That is an insane number for one draft class. So in terms of odds of them hitting their apex, you start to open up the field a little bit. It's a lot more reasonable to talk yourself in the four or five than it would be if you're trying to cherry pick four or five out of maybe like a class where you'd only have like 15 of those guys. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. And I mean, that was really, um, really insightful. That was pretty cool. I'm probably going to have to ask you about that later as we get more into this next draft class. But um, the thing about Sangoon is too, like, yeah, he's a foul machine on defense, but hasn't he shown like a little bit more on defense than he expected? Like, I didn't know, he, I'm not a draft guy, you know that, but I didn't know he was that strong. Like, he is so strong. Like, I keep seeing clips every day of him, like, going like, toe-to-toe with somebody and just hanging with them in the post. And, like, that's that's a huge, like, plus if that's, like, who he is on defense. You know what's really funny about Shen Goon is that there, were, there, there was a very large contingent on social media leading up to the draft last year where they were talking about Shen Goon is too small to play the five in the NBA. And I'm kind of looking around, and I'm doing, like, double takes at some of these tweets. And I'm like, I'm sorry – I didn't realize 6'10", 245 pounds was small to play a position in the NBA. Would you ideally like to have a seven-footer play center in the NBA with uh, like like a plus four, plus five wingspan? Like, sure. Are you always going to get that? No. But at the same time, even though he's only like 6'10 at his toss, I've seen some reports like 6'9 and a half. I, I believe that he's 6'10 um, from the film that I've seen, but 245 pounds, that dude is a mountain down low. Like you are not moving him on the block. So while he needs to learn how to hold himself back a little bit, not bite as much on defense to um, lower that foul rate at the same time, he he's stronger, I think, than everybody wanted to initially give him credit for. I think he's bigger than everyone initially wanted to admit he was for all those people that say he was probably like 6'8". No, I believe that he's 6'10". 
And to your point, Matt, as to what I said with some of the stats as well, like he's been such a playmaker defensively. I think his instincts and his overall IQ for the game on both ends of the floor, I think have surprised some people who didn't watch him closely enough before the draft. What what do you think about Shangun as a whole from what you've seen? How high do you think his ceiling is? Yeah, so um, me and Mark, we did a deep dive on the Rockets about a month ago. And uh, Mark was tasked with uh, the Shengun portion of it. So I didn't get to watch him as thoroughly as I'd like. But, um, I mean, if you – so Bryce Hendricks, our, our good friend, he wrote um, in the summertime, and this was a really well-thought-out piece about, like, the the idea of drafting offensive-oriented bigs. And, like, if they're not, like, Jokic-level offensive bigs, they need to be, like, plus defenders. And then he cited, like, Sabonis and Vooch. And I forget who the third one was, but, like, he cited those guys as examples of, like, how it's hard to build a championship team with a guy like that anchoring your defense. But um, I don't know, man. I think Shangun, he might might have the potential with that strength. I think he's stronger than Sabonis and Vooch. I think with that strength, and, like, usually good passers tend to be, like, really have, like, really strong hands and be in the right place on defense. So I think with that, I think he has the chance to be a better defender than those two. Offensively, like the passing's there. His shooting needs work. He's still not good at fishing in the rim, which is like a big red flag for big men. I don't know. It's hard to say. When I said that we have a chance of having five All NBA guys in this class, I'm gonna be honest with you. Like I didn't think that Shangun was one of them, but um, I definitely see. Was, who who would those five guys be for you then? We we know Cade Mobley. Okay, and, and when I say yeah. So when I say all NBA guys, I don't mean like perennial all NBA guys. I mean like they're sure. gonna make one. Do one they have three, a chance to make a first, second, or a third mm-hmm. team? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, Kate, for me, it's it's Cade, no particular Cade Mobley. I think Giddy. I think Giddy will make one. I think he's such a brilliant passer, man. And that is like, and then he has what Rubio never had, and that was the size. So I, I think Giddy. Um, I think. Uh, I, I need to watch more of him, but I'm I'm really impressed with Wagner. I think he can be – I think he fit – he's one of those guys. You could put him on any team. You could put him on any team, and he's going to fit well. And then I saw some – his true shooting went down a bunch without Cole Anthony, but even without Cole Anthony and Suggs in the lineup, he was able to step it up offensively, which is promising. Um, who else? Who was my fifth guy? Why am I blanking on him right would now? It, would it be I, Scotty Barnes? It would be okay. There you go. Thank you. It would be Scotty Barnes. Yeah, Samson Folk wrote a really, a really good piece on him, and I, I love the hell out of Scotty Barnes. But um, yeah, those would be my five. Um, I think Jalen Green has like a lot of. I see a lot of Zach Levine in him, and if he ever reaches, if he ever unlocks that like side of him, talk, talk to me about Jalen Green since you were able to do a dive on him because like I'm personally, I'm not, I'm not leaving Jalen Green Island. I think that. For all that he's struggled this year, the type of player that he is, I think a lot of those struggles were easy to predict. Like, he's not the most cerebral player when it comes to understanding Mm -hmm. what's going on in the court. Like, that's not baked into his DNA. Can he get smarter over time as he continues to study and practice and grow? Absolutely. Was that going to be there for him from day one? No. But obviously, all the natural talent has been on display. He's had flashes of scoring brilliance and when you throw out a name like Levine that was a popular comp for him um but before the draft process so are are you kind of still in on on Jalen Green what did you what did you uncover when you dove in a little bit on him yeah um again Mark Mark was uh, the Jalen Green guy but I mean I was when I was watching those games he my eyes were glued to him because he's so fun but 
Yeah, that first step, it translates. He's like he's got one of the fastest first steps in the league. He's the kid's 19 years old. Um, in transition, he's a demon. Three point shooting's been coming along more since the injury. He gets the free throw line like it's nobody's business. Um, he okay for the passing thing. It reminds me a lot of Anthony Edwards in that. So whenever mm-hmm. you have an athletic two guard, the first place your mind goes is like a draft person is probably D Wade, right? Because you never touch Jordan. And then Kobe's such a anomaly when it comes to shooting guards because his game is more. I don't think that's replicable, like the footwork and the the muscle memory and the tough shot making. I don't think you can replicate that in a prospect, to be honest with you. And like I said, MJ's off limits. Nobody tries. Nobody compares anybody to MJ. But so it's D Wade is like the next possible one, right? But the thing that a lot of people don't get is like D Wade for his time was an elite playmaker. He had that cerebral element to his game where he can make the, those passes that, you know, the other guys can see. I don't think when I talked about Anthony Edwards, I don't think that level is attainable, but like the notch before it where you can, and I think that's where Zach Levine is at now as a playmaker, where you can, you could draw two to the ball and you know where to go with it. I think that is very attainable, very coachable, very teachable. And if Jalen Green can unlock that part of his passing with his ability to, you know, create advantages with that first step and his ability to get to the line, which is such an easy way to become an efficient scorer on high volume, I think that bodes really well for his ceiling. What did you say? Yeah, I. so the thing that I always said about um, Jalen Green when we talked about his passing before the draft was that I, I didn't think he'd ever be like a consistent plus passer. When I say plus, I mean like, is he someone you can look to to average like close to or, or above six assists per game? Um, I didn't see that being an attainable average for him over the course of his career. I think if he's if he's averaging around you know four four and a half assists, that'd be that'd be a great mark um, for for him to reach. But similar to what, what what I said about was, you know, like Jason Tatum isn't necessarily who you would consider to be like a plus passer every single night that he's playing basketball, but all of a sudden mm-hmm. you'll look up and he'll have these games where he has like he has like seven eight nine ten assists, and you're like holy shit, how'd that happen? Like, where did that come from? Um, to where, you know, you can trust him to make plays within the flow of the offense, and if his shot isn't falling, you at least trust Jason Tatum to, more often than not, unless he goes to one of those, you know, step-back jumpers that's ill-advised after he's missed, like, five of them in a row. For the most part, he's generally making the right play within the flow of the offense, and I think that Jalen Green can get to that point. Um, not going to be a great passer, probably, like, on, on the borderline of being good, which would be like that four, four and a half assist type of range is, is a high point that he can get to. I'm assuming you're in agreement. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, probably wouldn't think of it as like in terms of assist, but yeah, you like, like you said, like it's Tatum's a good one. I like that. That's, that's a smart. I'm going to, I'm going to coin some sort of philosophy called <laughs> Jason Tatum, the Jason Tatum epidemic. So was there, so we talked about, talked about Cade. We talked about Mobley. We mentioned Scotty. Um, Franz Wagner was a big one for me. Um, him and Giddy were really the two big ones for me before we, we close out this podcast, Matt, as far as Franz, listen, I, I thought that I, I threw around before the draft that at his high point, maybe, maybe, maybe he could hit the level of like a Gordon Hayward type wing in the NBA. And I said that with utmost caution because Gordon Hayward at one point was like a top five small forward in the NBA. So like I say that name and I don't even think that I'm always thinking about how high of a bar that is to potentially reach. 
But you look at what Franz has done at different points this year, and you go, "Well, damn, I don't want to put a, I don't want to put a cap on his ceiling." I think that maybe he could be like one of the top, you know, five to seven small forwards in the NBA one day because he's that he's that skilled. Um, he's come along that much as a shooter already. He's been uh, maybe not like a, a great passer, but I think he's been a consistently solid to good passer um, within the flow of that Orlando offense. What 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 do you think about? What do you think about Franz? And then kind of give me some of your, your giddy thoughts after you give your Franz thoughts as well to close out the podcast. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you listen to the JJ Reddick pod. I've been binging it a lot lately. I just got into it. but I Old Man of the Three talk. is absolutely a favorite. Oh, good, good. I was listening to Draymond talk. I don't know if you listened to that episode, but like it, it dawned on me when Draymond was talking. He talked about how important it is to be able to get the ball out of your hands quick when you're passing it. And I just, so I like to call it like hot potato passing for me. Like that's Wagner in a nutshell. I don't think he holds the ball too long. He doesn't dribble the ball. You're out of the ball. Um, he gets the ball. He's either attacking or he's, he's making the next pass. I think he's really like really intuitive as a closer. I mean, a cutter and that bodes well in a lot of offenses. You could play along high, like high usage guys that way. So, I mean, it just – it really impresses me, guys like that, who they don't really need – like, they can go, like, seven, eight, nine possessions. This is something I kind of got from Duarte. They can go seven, eight, nine possessions. They don't see the ball. You don't remember they're there for a second. And then, like, three, four possessions, they can be at the center of the action or they can be finishing an action. Um, yeah, so that's, like – I mean, I just think about it all the time. I'm like, what if – and not to, like, you know, shit on Wiseman or Kaminga, but, like, what if instead of Wiseman Kaminga, it was – Wagner and Lamella Ball, and like when you when you make that kind of analogy, the reason I'm bringing it up is you are um, you're basically like insinuating that these are the kind of guys who know how to play in like one of the most complex off offenses in NBA history. If that like that should tell you right there, like the guy's like kind of a wizard. And then defensively, I'm like I'm kind of like stunned by like how versatile he is on defense. I've seen him guard like Trey Young, uh, Kevin Durant. Uh, I've seen him like. And for like a possession or two, put a body on like Embiid. You know what I mean? It's just, I didn't, I was not expecting that. Usually he's quicker like, and stronger oh, than you think he is. It's very, very no, deceptive. Yeah. yeah, no, it's like usually that like that like uh, archetype of offensive player is like usually on defense. They're just known for being like right place, right time guy. You know, yeah. and maybe they play the passing lane or something. But like he's like okay, Trey Young. Yeah, I'll keep him in front of me. Not, and he's not gonna stop him. Nobody will. But like sure. just the fact that the Magic have like enough confidence in him for him to pick up Trey Young at the point of attack is like really alarming. And it's like it gives him a different, uh, a different flavor than most players like him. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And then any 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 other parting thoughts on on Giddy as we close out? Um. Uh, I would I would need too much time, and I, 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 I got to get those Buffalo Wild Wings. But um, no, just just like I want to leave with this. It's not an over exaggeration to say he's the best nineteen year old passer ever. I really believe it. Fair enough. We will we will hopefully revisit some of these other rookies. Maybe maybe break into some sophomores next time, and and I'll be really interested to get you on closer to draft time when you've had some time to to study some of these upcoming prospects to to really pick your brain, and in turn you can pick my brain. I'm sure we'll have a great conversation closer to the draft time. But that will do it for this episode, Matt. You did give me more time technically than we had a lot of to do this, so thank you so much for for hopping on for conversation that was. Unexpected. I really did not expect that 
um, that, that Harden-Simmons deal to ultimately go down, but it did, so we had to talk about it. You were a great person to have come on and, and share some knowledge. So please plug yourself, plug yourself on social media, plug everything that you're doing really quick. Yeah, um, easiest way to follow my work, at Matisa15 on Twitter, at M-A-T-I-S-S-A-15. I do a lot of writing for Basketball News. Pretty much every Tuesday I have an article come out, and then usually another time during the week. Also write for like the analyst, uh, Forbes, Rise Network. Um, I do you know, a bunch of freelancing work. If you have a website, you be a freelance writer. Maybe you hit me up. Who knows? But um, it was really fun at, uh, being with you, Nathan. I, I know I'm really congrats on the uh, the no ceilings, no no ceilings thing. I'm such a huge fan of that team. I'd love to collaborate with you guys on something soon. And Kevin, it was good to catch up with you too and get a little bit of insight on the Heat. Absolutely. We we appreciate you for, for coming on, Matt, and, and for following the No Ceilings journey that it is. Yeah, we we will absolutely um, involve you in some collaborative work. I don't know if that would be writing. Maybe that would be coming on the No Ceilings podcast. We'll we'll keep you involved, man. Like I said, you're 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 one of the you're one of the best young minds um, in the basketball space. And we'll we'll definitely be doing some more content soon. But in the meantime, Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you haven't subscribed, please, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're not following me on social media, please do so at Draft Deeper. We will keep the conversation rolling into next week. As I mentioned, CJ Marchesani will be joining me um, on the podcast. We'll talk about some quote-unquote race for number one topics in the draft world as well as we, we will pick apart the, the Simmons hard and trade a little more. But until then, thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.